You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Every article of clothing, every accessory worn by a member of the military must conform to the regulation, but there are gaps in compliant clothing available for service members, particularly women. While I was on active duty, finding a purse that fell under military regulations was more than difficult. It was impossible. The purse I had found was technically non-compliant, but every purse I had found had one thing that made it so it did not meet standards. Luckily, Wilco Life understood this need and created an online boutique of minimalist style bag and accessories that meet military regulations. And even if you are not looking for a military regulations purse or bag, you should check out Wilco Life since they also offer and carry product from veteran-owned companies that don't meet military regulations. Go to wilcosupplyco.com, use the code airmentomom, and save 15%. That's wilcosupplyco.com with the code airman, the number two, mom, to save 15%. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for being a guest on the show today. Well, you're welcome, Amanda. I'm kind of glad we finally got this done. It's It's been a long time in the in the making. I think you've been talking about, you know, you're starting this podcast for a while, and it's kind of exciting to hear the episodes that you've done. So thank you for inviting me. And like I said in the intro, Anna is a veteran of the Australian Army. So she's my first international veteran. So I'm really excited to learn a little bit about your time in the military and how it's different from the American military that you kind of know about because you're married to someone who's in the Air Force. Yeah, you know, there's still been a lot of things that that I've learned. So why did you decide to join the military? So I think my story is one that is not probably unfamiliar to a lot of there were a lot of motivating factors. I think at the time it was definitely a case of knowing that I could, you know, achieve a university degree through the Australian Defence Force Academy. So we have a tri-service military academy in Australia. So whereas, you know, in the US you have Air Force, West Point, Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy, and all that kind of thing. We just have one tri-service training academy and then you go off into your different services for kind of top of training and things like that so you know that kind of is set up so that it comes with a very good quality university degree and you know I'm the eldest of four and I grew up on a cattle ranch and it was definitely something where my mum sat me down a few years before that and just said we're not going to be able to afford to send all of you to university and we really think that that's going to be a place that that would be good for you and so it was a it was sort of a matter of like necessity. I wanted to figure out how I could pay for it. So that's kind of a familiar story. But there were a couple of other things that I used to say. One, that how cool was it that someone was going to like pay me to stay fit and healthy, which I loved anyway. And I also kind of just knew that I thrived in, in an environment that had regularity and discipline. And so I was sort of really looking forward to that and that was kind of how I ended up applying in the first place. And I actually applied to go to the academy both for the Air Force and the Army. 
And there's a funny story about how I had always actually wanted to be in the Air Force. And I ended up in the Army almost, not really by accident, but almost by accident. They were the ones that accepted me first. <laughs> I went, let's just get this done. Yeah, the Air Force, in typical Air Force fashion, decided they wanted to do my final kind of interviews and intake things on the same kind of days as I had some really big high school exams and they wouldn't change it. I mean, surprise, military doing things that are inconvenient, right? And so I kind of thought, well, I mean, maybe I can change over later. And that didn't happen, but yeah, it's, like, it's been a while. It's actually been 20 years since I joined. Wow. So, that makes me feel old, but I wasn't that old. Right. I was 18. So you have one academy but you go in declaring which branch that you're going to be in when you commission? Yeah, so so we actually commission before we walk in the door. So that's something that's different than here in the States too. So the day that, so we actually enlist, we take our oath and we are commissioned on the one day and they commission a whole class at a time, commissioned kind of all around the country and then you get kind of flown to the academy. So I was actually commissioned in Sydney, which is the capital city of the state where I grew up. And I was commissioned with people who were, and enlisted with people who were serving in the Navy and in the Air Force as well as the Army. So I remember that kind of day of people not, you know, there were people who were due to enlist that didn't show up and things like that. That always happens, right? I still remember the feeling of actually going into the gates of the academy. And I remember this really strong feeling of a, of actually meeting a goal, of having a dream that I had had probably at that point for about four years coming true. And that particular feeling is one that I think taught me a lot because once you know how that feels, mm-hmm. it changes the way you set goals in the future, I think. It, yeah, there, are, there have been times where that feeling has come in really handy because there were a lot of things after that that were not so fun. Right. Because like any military academy around the world, anyone who tells you that they actually like loved it and loved every minute of it is absolutely lying. It's like, that's just not how it works. There's good parts and bad parts, but it's not all good. No. And I think that's something that is, yeah, that's something that is good to remember too. Because sometimes even when you get to a place where you've met a goal or achieved something you really wanted to achieve, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be and it's always going to be kind of sunshine I do remember that for that first like for the next like 120 days I saw the sunrise every day and it's the longest stretch of my life I've ever you know been awake before dawn yeah so is that the only way to become an officer in the military in Australia no it's not there is like a direct entry path that people can take so you can do an undergraduate degree kind of on your own steam and then we sort of have a kind of ROTC program but it's not really it's part of the direct entry so you can kind of apply for sort of a scholarship to help you finish your studies and then and then sort of enter you know you go to each of the single service you go and do some just training it's not really an officer they do have like an officer candidate school for each of the services for the army that's one year long and once you've finished at the Defence Force Academy, you then move over for that one year anyway. So if you're someone who's direct entry, you do two years at a place they call Duntroon. And Duntroon has a lot of a lot of military history. It's kind of they do a, a big kind of beating the retreat each year to to classical music and and 
do your canons and things like that. But it's a two-year program if you haven't gone through the academy as opposed to a one-year program. It's a very long officer candidate school. Like I, US is how it's like three months, right? At most. Yeah, I was gonna say it was twelve weeks. So yeah, three months. Yeah. So to kind of have to do two years is yeah. pretty crazy. That's really uh-huh. crazy. <laughs> That's yeah. really long. So yeah, which is why I guess it's attractive to like go and get a degree with them instead. But yeah. But then you're like doing military for your like four years, right? And then you still have a year after. Yeah, so yes, that's exactly right. And the other thing is that if you go in as a direct kind of entry officer, whether it's through like the OCS equivalent, you actually can't do that till you're 21. So if you go into the academy, you can do that at 18. If you go direct entry, you have to be 21. So that's their kind of way of, and you can be, I think the upper age limit is is around 30, I think. That's what it Um, is in the Air Force too. Yeah. I think that's their kind of way of not having too much disparity between people. Interesting. So what was it like to attend the academy? It was a challenge. I think the hardest part for me was that uh, um, I was a long way away from home. It was it was pretty um, – I loved a lot of it, as we talked about. Like, I loved the uh, academics. I loved combining all of these things. A little way into my first year there, I woke up one morning uh, along with quite a few other people. I think it was like two dozen people. And we had all uh, ended up with some form of food poisoning or I ended up with gastroenteritis from mess food. And it's it's one of those ironies of like military life that we joke about how mess food can make you really sick. Or, But actually it did to me. I got very ill. I was in hospital for two weeks. And I ended up, that actually developed the condition out of that that ultimately resulted in me being medically discharged, which was not my decision. Like, I really wanted to go in and serve, and I had these plans of, like, trying to get the Army to pay for law school, and I was, like, I really saw myself, actually, and I know some people do and some people don't, but I actually did have this idea that maybe I would do career Army, right? Like, do 20 years. And so all of a sudden, I found myself through the rest of that year in a lot of pain and I wasn't I got fairly sort of to a point where I was fairly desperate like I just didn't know what was going to happen next and the yeah I ended up in Australia we call it being class four so when you have a class four medical it means you're medically unfit to continue to serve and when they made that decision after I spent actually eight months in hospital for the rest of that year so most of the rest of that next year was kind of in and out of hospital and and so they sort of sent me to a casual they PCS me basically to a to an Air Force base. So as an army uh, an army officer, I was in an Air Force base, and I was in a casual position in a tri service unit for helicopter training. And I basically just went to work when I was well enough to, and finished out my kind of military time there. I spent about six months in that unit. So it was yeah. I mean, there's there's some other parts of that kind of story, but it's funny. Like my career almost ended just as it started like it I think I only ended up saying like just under 500 days which is not a lot but it certainly shaped who I am yeah it has a huge it had a huge impact on the rest of your life and did the military do anything to like compensate you for causing you to get this illness that you still (sighs) yeah so 
yes and no. So the way it works in Australia is if you become injured as a result of combat-related injuries, then they have a specific system called Veterans Affairs and you can receive what they call a gold card. But for situations like mine where I was essentially in training, they actually have a slightly different system called, uh, they used to call it ComCare, but basically the government insurer steps in. So the military healthcare system kind of doesn't necessarily take care of anyone who's not serving anymore. So you go over to Veterans Affairs. So in my case, I ended up having to sue the government insurer to take responsibility. And that's, I guess, the next part of the story. So my final commander asked me shortly after I joined that unit what I was going to do when I got out. And I was, I sort of said to him, well, I'm thinking about going to law school. I hadn't finished my undergraduate degree, but there's a way in Australia if you've already kind of, you can actually do an undergraduate degree and go to law school at the same time. It's a lot of work, but you can do it. And so I had mentioned to him that I was seriously thinking about that. And he basically said, well, can you apply for the next semester? And I had only a couple of days, but I put in the application and I got in to the Australian National University Law School, which is a great school. And honestly, I think my military experience was what got me in the door because it's a very high-ranking school. And, And I had good sort of good education kind of prior to that but I wouldn't have necessarily thought that I was a shoo-in so yeah so I was in a position where I was a first year law student having to kind of sue the government insurer to like figure out what's going on and so in the end I actually had to I took the case to the administrative appeals tribunal now I did have a lawyer help me and he did that on a contingency fee but he was super excited because I wrote a lot of the material and then he would just review it so it became it was a lot cheaper for me to do it this way and I ended up achieving a settlement which effectively paid for law school so it didn't necessarily give me something for the rest of my life um, and it certainly actually doesn't and hasn't covered my healthcare as a relative as it relates to it but we do have a different system in Australia for healthcare. So the fact that it hasn't covered healthcare has not been as expensive for me maybe as it might be in the, in the US. I think certainly that would be more of an issue. In some ways, like I look at the VA and knowing what both my husband and my father-in-law and my brother-in-law have in the present and have in the future, dealings with it, I sometimes look at it and think, oh my goodness, the VA at least provides for veterans. You know, it's... It, Having to sue the government for something that, uh, in my case, was a service-related illness, very clearly service-related what happened. I mean, I was the worst-case scenario for what can happen after gastroenteritis, but having conditions that still kind of continue 20 years later is pretty insane from something like that. But yeah, I'm really glad that you guys don't have to sue the VA. Like, you do have to go through a lot of issues with sorting your benefits out. The VA is by no means perfect, but I'm really glad you're not having to sue them. Yeah. Do you have any favorite memories from your military experience? I know you, I really liked when you were talking about walking through, like, the gates of the academy and how that stuck with you, but do you have anything else? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I have a bunch. I mean, I have silly things I did. Helicopter training school, I managed to, over the radio, ask someone to repeat what they had said which I don't know if if this makes as much sense as the U.S. but you know rather than asking them to say again or something like that so that was a fun one I remember how much oh man they gave me such a hard time for that but you know you can imagine like you've got this young casual officer like that you live to give those people a hard time worked with a bunch of enlisted guys that were old and grizzly and I just remember they 
one of them at least got it in his head that I was probably 10 years older than I was at the time and I never corrected him because <laughs> I just remember thinking oh you do not want to know how old I actually am right now but I think a lot of really cool stuff happened around even though it was really really hard I went through a lot of grieving actually like as I was discharged because that was not how I wanted my military experience to end but I think what was really funny was well, not funny as I left that posting, I had been living like in the officers' quarters. We call it a, we call like where we eat and where we live a mess. So I was living in the mess, and I had one of my neighbors happened to be this young Air Force officer who was, I guess, a captain equivalent, a flight lieutenant, and he happened to fly for. A, so he flew like the governor general, so that's our head of state and prime minister and all of that kind of stuff. That was his job. Well, so I mean, he liked. You know, he had a very healthy dating life, but he would very often be invited to go to these really amazing formal functions, both at Parliament House and Government House. And we stayed friends, and partly as a consequence of him, but also some of my other activities, I managed to meet four Governors General in a row, which is pretty cool. He, he needed a date, but he wanted a date that kind of knew what was going on and, and could handle themselves in military situations. And so I basically became the date that got to go to a lot of these things as a friend and, you know, he would do what he needed to do and I would get a chance to see these incredible buildings and meet really cool people. So that's certainly an experience that happened just after I left service, but it's something that would not have happened without that experience. I've had that chance. So yeah, stuff like that is very cool. I think the other thing is that there's a number of women particularly that I served with who ended up strangely within the next 20 years marrying American service members it's really there's only a group of about four or five of us but you know we laugh because we never would have seen that for ourselves and we never would have seen ourselves kind of marrying into the U.S. but for a time being you know they we kind of keep in touch a little bit because it's this odd experience of having served together and then marrying someone in the U.S. military, which is a bit weird because the Australian military is very laid back. I think there's other stories I could probably tell you that, that would indicate that. There's times where I, I often laugh even now. I mean, there's this uh, roll call tradition within the U.S. Air Force that, you know, the first time I, and, and spouses don't often go to those in the US, within the U.S. Air Force thing, but the times that I have been around them, I often kind of laugh. Because I've said to my husband, oh my goodness, that's like every Friday afternoon, at, you know, in the units that I was part of, even for a short period of time. So I think there's a lot of like sharing of traditions that unless you've seen more than one military, you don't necessarily realize right. how much they borrow from each other. They really, tradition-wise and culture-wise, it's really fascinating to kind of see the similarities that's interesting because I was doing research for another article about why officers enlisted like aren't supposed to fraternize and the article brought yeah. me back to the British military and was and was like yeah most of the American stuff came from which makes sense but I was like oh oh I never would have expected that so that makes it makes sense especially because Australia would have been formed by the British as well yeah yeah, yeah, certainly our military, we, we actually, so that's actually something that even this last week, so the end of April is somewhere, um, a time that is super significant for both Australia and New Zealand military service members and veterans. The 25th of April is, is our equivalent really of Memorial Day. 
And so it's Anzac Day and no matter where you are in the world, if you find, whether they're military or not, if you find Australians and Australians and New Zealanders, you're going to find an Anzac Day ceremony. It often takes place at dawn. So just last week, I actually was part of a small service on our base in southern New Mexico where my husband's stationed. There are a few Australians there right now. And we had a, you know, just kind of after the start of the work day, we got together for a small remembrance ceremony. And then we went upstairs for some food and, and we do a bit of a tradition of, of a little shot of rum in our coffee because the first time that Australians and New Zealanders served under their own flag was this battle at Gallipoli in Turkey on the 25th of April, 1915. And the tradition always was at least first world war and it hasn't necessarily continued the same, but before the troops would go over the, over the top, they would give them a shot of rum. And so there's certain traditions that we hold. So even in the battle, like even deployed today, you know, Australian military has a beer ration. You don't necessarily get that with the US military. You know, right. you guys have general order one. There are things like that. You know, that particular war shaped our way, the Australian kind of military way of doing things. We very, very much don't accept any kind of casualties as being acceptable. It's this kind of idea of scrappiness, but it's also this bit of a reverence too. So the relationship between the enlisted and officers is a little bit more laid back. There's certainly a, a time and a place for giving orders, but there's a lot more kind of ribbing that happens and a lot more sort of interpersonal connection that is is very is very different because there's this idea too of hey like if that order is stupid we're going to talk about it more as opposed to just having to do the really stupid stuff you know it's it's partly Australian culture but it's also because of the way it was formed and the fact that you you know Australians and New Zealanders found themselves in this situation in 1915 where you know the the British senior officers were ordering them to do things that were literally sending them to their deaths and so it's really changed the way that we do things and it's amazing how something that happened so long ago still influences how we relate I think it's why you know Australia does a lot of war games with the US and I think it's always a really interesting thing to hear people talk about how those interactions are, are influenced by our different cultures but also by our similarities you know we, we like to get the job done you know, we're usually there and we're usually quiet, but we, we kind of are around. So. I want to switch gears, even though I could probably talk to you for like another hour about oh, all these right. stories. It's oh, so good. interesting. But you are married to someone serving in the Air Force. And I just want to know how you met your husband. Oh, so it's, it's a very kind of modern story, I guess. Modern in the sense that we were both in places in our lives where we kind of looked around and went, I just don't know how it's going to be possible for us to meet anybody. I had just moved back to Australia from Scotland and he had, he was in the process of PCSing from Arkansas to New Mexico. And we actually met online, which even now I kind of look and think, wow, I just don't know if we ever would have gotten to know each other any other way. He's very shy compared to me. And he writes very well. So we actually wrote to each other for quite a long time before we first sort of Skyped, it was then. And then we, you know, talked a lot before we, we first met. He actually came out to Australia to see me in the midst of a PCS, which I now realize was kind of insane, but very cool. He took a, yeah, it was a huge step and um, about six years ago now and kind of, we, yeah, we got married less than 11 months 
from when we first met, which is which is crazy. Uh, it is crazy, but uh, and especially because I was not interested in dating a military guy. Like because of my own experiences, I just was not interested. <laughs> I just didn't want to do that. And he joked because he actually said to me in a in a letter or an email early on, like I'm the least pilot like pilot you've ever met. And I'm like, dude, everyone says that. <laughs> like I don't believe. Turns out he kind of is. He's he's not like super type A. He's a he's a very gentle, thoughtful person, quite intellectual. He's an ultra marathon running piano player, I like to say. He's a very sweet guy, but yeah. I I kind of can't quite get my head around it. I think what's really funny is my um I made him meet my entire family, my grandmother, my mom and my siblings, like within the first like when he came out to Australia <laughs> which is nuts but I'm really glad he did because my grandfather particularly really connected with him and I think my grandmother probably knew before I did that you know that he was the one so <laughs> it was kind of crazy that is. There you go. so what was it like to marry someone in the American military and not be a U.S. citizen oh complicated yeah (laughs) the best way to do it I mean even as simple as you know even while we were dating you know he was doing the the necessary reports he needed to do to his security office and so his security office knew about things happening in our relationship before I did and we actually joked about that because one of the officers he worked with she was the one that he reported to the whole time and so you know he went to her to kind of talk about proposing to me <laughs> this whole conversation with with the security office and then you know the all the paperwork we had to do a lot of paperwork before we got engaged so about my family and then we you know he not only had to get permission from his command to marry someone who wasn't a US citizen he also had to get permission to get married in Australia to someone who wasn't a US citizen and so we went through this entire process before our wedding and and so technically, we didn't know until four days before the wedding that he was actually approved to marry me. He got our first wedding congratulations were actually from a colonel in Paycom saying, congratulations, you've been approved to get married, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. So things like that are very, very different, I guess, people getting married into the military experience. So even though, you know, it was relatively quick, there was still a lot we had to figure out. And then after we got married, I actually only stayed in the US. So we got married in Australia. We had a week honeymoon in Australia. He was in a in a, a unit at the time that was extremely busy and it had a very high ops tempo. And so he just couldn't, there was just no way he was going to be able to have any more leave than about five days. And so I flew back to the States with him and I only stayed 30 days because I needed to, to get back and kind of get some things sorted and figure out what we were going to do immigration wise. And so it was really hard 30 days after we got married to like not know when we were going to see each other again. That was, that was really tough. And I think I, I really feel a lot for, there's a lot more foreign, foreign born military spouses out there than I think a lot of people realize. And I know in some ways, I at least had some preparation. I mean, the military itself wasn't new to me. Being a military spouse is a whole different game than being a service member. I mean, I think that feeling never goes away. Even a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to, we're getting ready for an OCONUS PCS and my husband's still deployed. It's like the longest deployment known to man at this point. And I still have that feeling of just utter powerlessness when, you know, you come up against something bureaucratic and you're made to feel like, 
you don't really exist because you're not the service member. I think it's hard as a spouse, but I personally, maybe it's this bias. I feel like it's even harder if you've served that feeling of like all of a sudden you don't count any. It's a very odd feeling. And sometimes you kind of want to shout from the rooftop, hey, like I'm a professional human being. Like I, I, people actually usually care what I have to say or not necessarily care, but like, like I'm a, I'm actually worth something in other parts of life. I feel like it's either a magic trick or just something you learn that, you know, whenever somebody says no, I usually try to be ready with like the regulation that says actually yes. And I feel like that's something that maybe you learn as a service member yourself. But it's certainly, I mean, there is a lot of differences between Australia and and the US. And there's some terminology I had to learn because there's certain terminology you guys don't use. So, for example, uniforms wise, we call what are generally, you know, BDUs or ADUs, the camouflage pattern. We call those CAMs in Australia, C-A-M-S. And so my husband's looking at me like, what are you saying? He's just completely confused. So I had to kind of get used to OCTs. You know, I had to get used to some of that language. I think the other thing is just, I mean, pilot culture is a whole different thing. I never really, like, I stayed away as far as possible from it. And so getting used to sort of how the Air Force does things and and the specific ways of, uh, I like to call it, I had to learn how to beat around the bush particularly when you're like talking to someone as you said you have to figure out like what do I need and how do I get what I need I think one of the hardest things has been something like uh, realizing that even your household goods and personal possessions are not your own like you know having to have like a power of attorney from the service member that gives you permission to deal with your own stuff that's been probably something that's both hard and and just a huge learning curve you know, I think security clear, like we actually, I just became a citizen in March and, and my husband's going through his security clearance process, you know, starting that process again at the moment. And, and I have to tell you, I was relieved that I was finally done with the citizenship process and he wasn't going to have to go through that, you know, having to tick the non-citizen box or whatever. That process is something that's made me pretty passionate about uh, military connected immigration. I think the system at the moment is, it doesn't seem to reflect the realities that there have been since the beginning of the US military, foreign born military spouses. This is not new. Every, you know, every step of the way. And there is a part of me that feels very much like I'm part of that long line of, I don't want to, war bride isn't quite the right thing, although, you know, obviously, the US has been at war the entire time my husband's been active duty. But it very much is that idea of there is a long line. You know, there were even Australian, you know, war brides that, that, that came back to the US following World War II, Vietnam, the Korean conflict and, and kind of everything in between. You know, I, I turned up at our first base to find that there was another Australian-born military spouse in our squadron, which I have to tell you was like the oddest thing in the world. And it was like the best thing in the world to discover someone else that, that at least I could talk to without having to explain everything I was saying. That was something that, I, even though I lived around the world, there's just sometimes culturally, it's really good to have someone to talk to that understands where you're from. I learned a lot about the citizenship process by following you via Facebook and learning because I I was pretty ignorant and I didn't really know like how challenging it was and like what 
people have to go through. So can you talk a little bit about that? Talk about yeah. the realities of how it is? So, I mean, it's, it's pretty tough for anyone, but actually if you add in, if you served in another military, that kind of adds some extra layers to it. So it's a lot of material. So when we did our initial application for my initial immigrant visa, so I had to do what they call a change of status, and then I had to file my green card application. So that was filed about four months after we got married. And then we went through the kind of this very long process of, uh, as I said, that culminated literally five years later in, in citizenship last month. In some ways, that process is actually a little bit faster. So it was made a tiny bit faster. Um, by tiny, I mean, I think it was about three months faster because when I finally got to the end and I told the citizenship interviewer that we were PCSing overseas in a couple of months, he actually made sure that I got the very next citizenship ceremony rather than having to wait three to six months for one. But other than that, I'm not sure it actually at any point was made faster, even though there is a military hotline and you're supposed to kind of put military spouse on the top of all of your paperwork. The process has become incredibly elongated. It's changed a lot and I don't necessarily want to be political, but it, it has really slowed down. The processing has really slowed down under the current administration. So what used to take, say, three months, um, there's a process in between having your green card and having a permanent green card for removal of conditions. And that means that instead of my green card being just based on my husband's, and me being married to him, it becomes based on me as an individual. Um, it is a certain element of security because I have to tell you, this thing called immigration abuse or immigration violence, and by immigration abuse, I don't mean people abusing the immigration system. I mean individuals who are a form of domestic violence use someone's immigration status against them. That's certainly not my case. My husband's a wonderful person. Um, but that happens, unfortunately, far more within the military spouse community than a lot of us want to realize. So the, this process of removal of conditions until only about three years ago took three months. When I did it less than two years ago now, it took 18 to get it completed. And so that process is hard because there are certain phases of the process where you can't leave the country. And so I didn't see my family for three years, which when you have elderly relatives is really, really just heartbreaking. Get all the time something's going to happen to someone. It's just emotionally really draining. There's a lot of material you have to collect. So you have to collect things like sort of criminal record check certificates from any place you've lived more than six months. By that, I mean country. And so, of course, I've lived in multiple countries. And so I have to make that more complicated. You have to collect, you know, the sort of level of detail of addresses you've lived at and places and jobs you've done. It's just, it's a lot of material. So I think the very first application we did was almost 300 pages of material we submitted. That actually includes personal letters. So you have to send like letters and emails you've written to each other. You have to send photographs. You also have to get affidavits from friends and family. And so friends and family. So in my case, really, it was a lot of my like brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law wrote these things because you can't have family members write them, but you're like, who do I have? And then especially with moving around, you know, each time you do this, sometimes you have to have affidavits from people who've known you more than two years. Well, in the military life, that's You're not always moving. easy. Yeah. yeah. So, and they have to know both you and your spouse, which is even harder sometimes, especially right. if you're in a crazy unit. 
So for me as well, with having military service, I had to track down all my military records. I also had to track down all my firearms training records, which you can imagine was not necessarily easy. And then there's these great questions on the application, which are really fun if you've ever served in the military. Like, they actually lump military service in with being a terrorist. So they ask questions like, have you ever served in a military unit, paramilitary unit, or with a terrorist group? And you have to answer yes, which is not at all comfortable. Right. There's also questions about, like, have you ever killed someone, which I guess are understandable, but also, like, really weird if you've ever served in, like, a deployed location. Or they ask questions about, have you ever supported a military unit that may have killed someone? Well, you know, you work in any branch of the military, and some of these questions you have to answer yes to, and it's not always pleasant. So... In the end, I was really grateful that there are quite a few veterans who work for USCIS because, and I think it may be intentional that they put military-connected immigrants with some of these officers when they interview them. I know certainly at our first interview, and my husband had to be with me for the first interview because they have to make sure you are really married. The interviewer had been stationed at our previous base, and we were stationed at Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico, which I love the people at Cannon. The environment itself is, I moved from the beach to Cannon, you know, pretty crazy. The interviewer had previously been stationed there when she was serving in the Air Force and she seriously took one look at our address and took one look at my previous address and knew that that was right on the beach because I lived on the beach in Australia. And, and she seriously looked up at us and said, oh, you have to love him. <laughs> like, no way you would move to Cannon otherwise. And Usually I don't like it when people diss Canon because I just think, you've never been there. You don't know what you're talking about. It's actually not too bad. But I did laugh because I turned to my husband and I was like, see, like we've been telling you this all the time. Like, how, like why would I move to the desert unless I really love this guy? So I've certainly written articles as well about like all the crazy stuff people say to me as a, as a immigrant military spouse. Some of those things are just, especially around things like, you know, I only married him for the healthcare, which is sort of nuts. And uh, things about, you know, how easy it is to get a green card if you're married to someone in the military. I think one of the biggest misconceptions people have is that you automatically become a citizen if you marry someone in the military. That belief is surprisingly common. And I don't think people intend to diss you when they say things like that. They just don't realize it. It's never, it's actually never been that way either. As far as I can tell, Maybe the only time it was ever automatic was maybe just after the Second World War. Because I know certainly my mother-in-law, who who is also, uh, was actually, she was born overseas as well. She certainly had to apply for citizenship as well in the 1970s. So it's, it's not something that's brand new. Right. It's been around a while. So I'm really not sure where that myth comes from. Well, even if you serve in the military and you're not... like the American military there's a process but it's not like you automatically you have to go through the process absolutely and I think a lot of people don't realize that too that um, they're starting to get a little better and having opportunities to apply for that citizenship you know while people are in basic training you can't commission as an officer in the U.S. military unless you are a citizen so even as a permanent resident or as a non-citizen you can only serve as an enlisted member and I discovered that partly because one of the things I was thinking was well maybe I could like 
become a reservist or do something when I got over here to maybe make this process easier. And there actually is no way. they And they wouldn't have enlisted me in the US military having been an officer of an ally. They just wouldn't have done that anyway. But yeah, it's one of those things that people don't realize how many people actually serve for an extended period of time without actually becoming a citizen, especially, you know, in the Navy, 14% of the Navy are foreign born. So you have, and that's active duty Navy, let alone spouses. So quite a substantial number of military members. The only service that counts how many military spouses are foreign born is actually the army. The other services don't keep track of, of dependent citizenship. Yeah, there's still a lot to work. I'm actually going to the, the Hill next week and I'm, I'm going to meet with, we meet with some members of Congress to talk a little bit about military-connected immigration. I think one of the things that as a, as a veteran, I, I really understand how important it is to have solid, you know, really solid national security. You want to make sure things are, are safe but we also want to reflect upon you know the stress that it can put on military families I actually it was the hardest day of this deployment and my husband agreed actually the hardest day of this deployment was me having to do the citizenship ceremony without him it was you know there's a lot of things we do without them and we kind of just get on with it but that day was incredibly hard hard for both of us and and I think the thing that was even harder for me was that I woke up the next day and I had, I did not imbibe. I did not drink any alcohol on that day. And I woke up the next day feeling absolutely hungover. And I felt that way for about three days. And I realized that it was an emotional hangover that I had that five years of not having a, not feeling completely safe. And I don't know that I necessarily feel any safer now, but I have to say preparing for an Oconus PCS with already having a US passport in hand is a whole lot more straightforward. Yes. <laughs> I was not looking forward to having to do that on a non-US passport. So. Well, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you, and I'm so thankful that you took time out of your schedule to talk to us. And I have one yeah. last question. Fire away. What would you tell women who are considering joining the military? I would tell them that go for it. You know, I think that in short, go for it. I would also kind of caution and talk through like what exactly they really want to do and and making sure that the service they're joining is a good fit for them. I think each of the services has a character of its own and it's a really good idea to, to talk with other women who served. I was really fortunate in the days before I, I joined up my, there was actually a a woman and an army officer who happened to be visiting her family in my small town and she heard that I was joining and she actually called my mum and invited me over. And I sat down with her and she gave me, she told me some things that I probably didn't want to hear about how tough it was going to be. And she also shared with me some of the really hard things that had happened to her and some of the ways that she had handled things. And honestly, I am super grateful that someone took their time out to do that. So I would say, talk if you know anyone who's a veteran a female veteran you know reach out to amanda have those conversations and and don't be afraid to hear that it's not all perfect and it's not all rainbows and butterflies you know it's like any profession the profession of arms is not always an easy one but that doesn't mean that it can't be satisfying and i think it's really exciting to me to see even in the last 20 years some of the really positive changes my husband remarked to me yesterday 
that the it, one of the commands, and I can't tell you which one, but one of the major Air Force commands this quarter, all of the award winners for the entire command at the top level were all women. And he told me that because he knew I would be interested, but he said, isn't this really cool? And I thought, it is really cool because if you think about the percentages are still quite skewed, there's still a lot more men than women in each of the services. But I think it's definitely a place now where you have people you can look up, up to. There are women generals. And, and I just think that's really exciting. I think it's always good to see women come before you. But no, they're still first to come. There are still areas of military service where women haven't necessarily been able to, to forge a path. So don't be afraid of that. It's okay if you're, you know, the first one or the second one, but reach out and, and take care of each other. I think it's cool that even 20 years later, I, I still keep in touch with women I served with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a family and it's, it is forever. So. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed getting to hear, well, I learned a ton this episode <laughs> and I'm just excited I got to spend more time with you because usually it's only a few short minutes and we're running here and there. So thank you so much. You too, Amanda. And thank you so much for inviting me to join you. It's, uh, yeah, this isn't something I talk about a lot. So it's, it's really cool to be part of the, your podcast family as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.